Okay, um, can you hear me? Yep, not yet. Huh? Sorry, sound is a problem today. Can you hear me? Okay, that's better, right? Okay, uh, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Fathers, we come before you today. Truly, we pray that you will help us to understand this passage to see how it applies to us today, to really get into the feet of the psalmist, to see what he's experiencing, and to see how it actually teaches us in the way we should live as your people. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now I remember when I first became a Christian, uh, many, many years ago, and uh, I was in a university Bible study, and uh, we met on a Sunday, which was quite different from normal. And I remember this particular Bible study even today, because as we were coming to our Bible study group, uh, one of the ladies in the group was crying. And she was really, really crying, you know, like sobbing and crying. And we were like, wondering, what's wrong, what's wrong, right? Uh, did, uh, you know, did something really tragic happen to you? Why are you crying like that? And apparently, what had happened was, she had had this lecturer who she really, really disliked because this lecturer was, you know, very rude, uh, very um, unfair, uh, gave them all very bad marks and she had prayed to God to take this lecturer away and lo and behold, the previous week the lecturer had died. And I'm telling you the real story, okay, I'm not making this up. And, she had, and this lecturer had died and she had come to the Bible study and she was really upset. She was thinking, you know, was it her fault? that this lecturer had died, had she been wrong to pray that this lecturer be taken away from uh, you know, her life or you know, from her university experience? And you know, would God judge her for what had happened? And we felt like, you know, how do we answer these questions? Was it right for her to pray this prayer? Uh, you know, what had happened? And we were struggling with this issue as well. And uh, today, as we look at Psalm 69, I didn't actually choose this psalm, uh, Sui Teng did, but I have to preach it. But I realized that actually nobody actually preaches this psalm very often at all. If you go to the internet and, and, and type Psalm 69, hardly anybody preaches this psalm. Because the difficult part about this psalm is verse 22 to verse 28. And it's actually what you call an uh, imprecatory psalm, which is fundamentally a psalm where people call down curses on the enemies of God. And it's a very difficult psalm for us because as Christians we sort of think, is it right for us to call down curses on the enemies of God? Is it right for us to call down God's judgment on other people? Because if you look at verse 22 to 28, it says some very, very serious things. So turn with me to verse 22 to 28 of your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, put up your hand. And Richmond is right there. He's ready to run with uh, you know, swift feet. Okay, yeah, at the front here, Richmond. Uh, so if you turn with me to Psalm 69 verse 22... Alright, anybody else need a Bible? Look at what it says there. Okay, it's very serious things, okay? May the table set before them become a snare, may it become a retribution and a trap. That means the table where you find fellowship and food, may this become a curse for you. May this be a place where you will not find food. May this be a place where you will not find fellowship. Verse 23, may their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. May the people 
that our enemies of the psalmist be blind, it says, and may they be bent over forever. Verse 24, pour, your, pour out your wrath on them, may your fierce anger overtake them, may their place be deserted, and let there be no one to dwell in their tents. So literally, may these people die and never have any offspring. Verse 26, may they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. That means not only will they not eat and not find satisfaction and food, no fellowship, may their bodies rot away, may they die, but ultimately may, not, may they not find salvation and may they be judged with God's wrath. Now when you read uh, verse 22-28, you sense that it's not quite politically correct. Right? And uh, it's not play-play sort of uh, words. Right? These are very serious words that are being prayed by the psalmist. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, as Christians, are we allowed to pray this sort of prayer today? I think there are three questions. Though. Three questions that I bring to this passage. Are we allowed to pray this prayer today? And the second question is, who can pray this prayer? Who is allowed to pray this prayer? What sort of situation can you pray this prayer? What situations are you allowed to pray this prayer when you find uh, yourself in this situation? And lastly, who can you pray this prayer against? Right, who is the appropriate person that you can pray this prayer against? Now, today's sermon is a heavy sermon, right? It requires heavy lifting, not just by the preacher, but also you, the listener, because you need to concentrate and pay attention to what I'm saying, because I'm very weary, weary that I could also preach this passage wrongly. You need to focus on this passage, because it's a very difficult, uh, difficult application for us. So, let's look at the first beginning part of this passage, in verse 1 to 3. And this section, it shows that the psalmist, probably David, is facing real difficulty. He begins the passage by saying, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out crying for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Now, the whole mood of this passage here is to show that he is really, really in desperate times. Uh, it, it, it uses imagery about how you know, he's sinking in the water. It's coming up to his throat. It's up to your neck. Okay? And what's after your neck? Your mouth and your nose. So you can't breathe anymore. So you know, he's sinking in water. It says that he's, he's sinking in miry depths. So he's like, some people say it's like quicksand. He's unable to swim. He cannot float above the water. He's in deep water. He cannot find any foothold. He's engulfed by the floods. Uh, I remember this guy, uh, this commentator, Gerald Wilson. He says the picture here is almost like a shipwrecked sailor who's threatened by waves and overcome by the water. But it's made worse because in verse 3, we see that he is calling to God for help and he's been calling for a long time. But God is not there to hear him. He's shouting and shouting to God until his throat is parched. His eyes are looking for God, but he cannot see God. His eyes are failing. Now, I don't know whether you ever feel that way, where you are calling to God for help, where things seem so desperate, but you cannot get an answer. But the problem here is not so much circumstances. It's not so much natural tragedy 
or something that's just happened. But the problem is, and I like what this person said, Gerald Wilson, he said he's not pounded by the waves of circumstance, but he's pounded by people. People problems, by the lies and accusations, threats and attacks of people. And this verse 4 and verse 19 and 21 show that he is suffering undeservedly. He is a person who, it says there in verse 4, isn't it? Those who hate me, hate me without reason. The word here is undeservedly. He is not hated deservedly. He says, many are my enemies without cause. Uh, The word here, without cause, means literally uh, falsely. They have hated me falsely. There is no cause for them to hate me. Uh, Those who seek me want to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. He's innocent, but yet he is forced to pay up what he hasn't actually stolen. And in verse 19 and 21, is the very same thing. He says in verse 19, You know how I am scorned, disgraced and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Now here is what is called a righteous sufferer. A righteous sufferer in the Old Testament for the Jews, when they looked at Psalm 69, they saw someone who was suffering without cause, a righteous sufferer. And Don Carson said there are three elements to a righteous sufferer. One is that there are a large number of enemies and there are great power in the enemies against the righteous sufferer. And not only that, this righteous sufferer faces false charges and the unjust actions of his enemies. He doesn't deserve his suffering. Right? Oh, it's up here. Okay. And here, the sufferer continues to trust in God. Now, this is the first circumstance of the who question. Who, is, who can pray this prayer? Well, it's the righteous sufferer, isn't it? The righteous sufferer. But as we read this passage, the question for us must be, how do we, how do we apply this question to ourselves today? It is the so what question. So what? Okay, David is, uh, or this person who's describing David's life. So what? David is, uh, is suffering this way. He's the righteous sufferer. But what does it mean for us today in Singapore, in our workplace, in our life, in our family life? What does it mean to us as we read Psalm 69? Is it just an interesting piece of news? No, I think the first thing that we learn is, in Psalm 69, is used very often in the New Testament to point to Jesus. It is to show that actually Jesus is the fulfillment of, of what happened to David all those years ago, that Jesus is the ultimate righteous sufferer. Okay, so you look up here in the slide. It actually points to the person of Jesus. As we understand Psalm 69, we understand in a more fuller measure what Jesus went through when he came on earth and went to the cross and died for us. So in John chapter 15, John chapter 15, this is what it says. It quotes from Psalm 69. Uh, and it quotes from, uh, in particular here, uh, it says there, he, hate, he was hated without reason. Okay, he was hated without reason in verse 4. If the world hates me, he says to his disciples, keep in mind that they hated me first. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. 
Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what was written in their law. They hated me without reason. And as we look in the Gospels, in the life of Jesus, there is really nothing that Jesus did that made him deserving of the hate, the pure hate and vitriol of the Jewish people. See, look at what it says there in verse um, 23, isn't it? They saw the miracles and instead of believing in Jesus, what did they do? They hated Jesus all the more. How unreasonable, illogical is that? They saw the miracles of Jesus which pointed to his divinity, but they hated him all the more. It says here in John uh, chapter 19, a few chapters down, right? later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, and this is when he was hanging on the cross, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked the sponge in it, and they put the sponge on a stalk, on, a, on the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, here, many, many people say, and I agree with them, that Jesus, when he was at the cross, drank the vinegar to fulfill Psalm 69. That's why it says there in verse 28, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Now, what scripture is being fulfilled by Jesus drinking wine vinegar? It must be Psalm 69, isn't it? Because Jesus was thirsty, but instead of giving him water, they gave him vinegar, something which was not a you know not something which quenched his thirst, but actually something which was very sour in his mouth. Now, as we look at this, I think that Psalm sixty nine, firstly and foremostly, as we read it as Christians today, we are meant to understand that when we look at Psalm sixty nine we are looking at something 600 years ago which looked forward to the unjust suffering and death of Jesus on the cross. Now, as we look at this, we, we understand just how unfair it was that Jesus died on the cross. Instead of Barabbas, a criminal and a rebel and a murderer, dying on the cross, Jesus, an innocent person, died in his place. Instead of being worshipped as God, he was hated by the very people he came to save. Now, part of the problem that we have today is, um, can we understand the passage in any other way? Psalm 69. Uh, I was listening to the internet, and uh, basically, when this person preached on Psalm 69, he only preached on three verses. Verse 9, verse 4, and verse 21. And uh, verse 4, verse 9, verse 21 are the key verses which are quoted in the New Testament uh, from Psalm 69, which point to Jesus. And that was the end of Psalm 69. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, what what happens to the other 33 verses? Do they apply to us at all? Or or do we just read this passage and say, okay, it's about Jesus, and uh, and that's it? Well, uh, this is where you have to decide for yourself, but I am convinced that actually, 
this passage can be read by us as Christians as well as instruction. But uh, people like Charles Spurgeon, and he's much greater than I am, he feels that it's only speaking of Jesus and that's all we should do with it. But I think that we can learn from it personally. Uh, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, which you can see up here, right, it says to Timothy, Paul speaking to Timothy here, he says, from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, and the Holy Scriptures at that time was not the New Testament, but the Old Testament. And this Holy Scriptures, he says to Timothy, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So yes, we look at Psalm 69 and we learn about salvation in Christ Jesus. How Jesus was the righteous sufferer who died in our place. But, verse 16 goes on to say, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. And so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that means that scripture doesn't just teach us about salvation in Jesus, but it instructs us and equips us in the way that we should live as God's people. And I think that as we look at this passage, Psalm 69, it teaches us that actually as righteous people, as God's people, we will follow our master Jesus and we will suffer as well. David was God's, someone that God loved. He was God's king. He was a man after God's heart and he suffered righteously without reason. People hated him without cause. And I think the New Testament actually uses Psalm 69 that way too. If we choose to follow Jesus, we choose to live a righteous life, there are times where we will feel that the water is up to our neck and we are being hated. Being hated without reason or cause. So come back again to John 15. Right? Look at what I said, but I highlighted it in green, right? Jesus' words to his disciples are, Yes, I did these miracles and they hated me without reason. But in green, right, it says there, As it is for you, because you do not belong to the world and I have chosen you out of the world, that is why the world hates you. See, Psalm 69, actually, if we pray Psalm 69, we are actually saying that we follow in the footsteps of David and Jesus. That if you live a righteous life, there will be times where you will be hated without reason. That if you live a godly life, there are times where people will attack you without cause. And I think that um, this is a wonderful balance, uh, a wonderful, uh, uh, I guess, warning for us that we should not accept the teachings of the prosperity gospel, which says, you know, if you're a Christian, everybody will love you, you'll be blessed, you'll never have a day's trouble in your life. Because Jesus had trouble in his life. Because he lived a righteous life. David had trouble in his life and he lived a righteous life. See, we have to realize that as we live in this world righteously, there will be suffering and there will be times where we feel overwhelmed with suffering. I remember that uh, there are times where, even if I look back in my life and perhaps you will experience this too. You go to the office or maybe you go to your classroom and people are gossiping about all sorts of things and you choose because you're a Christian not to gossip and what do people say? 
Ayah, why are you so holy, holy? Ah? Right? Now, they might mean it in jest, but then, if you keep doing that, people might not like it too. So they think, wow, this guy, this girl thinks he's better than us, you know? They want to join us in all this gossiping. As a guy, uh, not to say that only women gossip, right? But as a guy, okay, there are times where, you know, you're with your soccer team or with your, you know, your friends and then they tell all these sexual jokes or make sexual innuendos about people. And then because you're a Christian and you want to do the right thing, you say, no, I, I, can't, I can't take part of this. Right? This, I cannot, this cannot be part of my life. Uh, maybe in your NS camp, there are people who, um, you know, who want to engage in talk which is unholy, ungodly. And you don't want to be part of that. Then they look at you and they say, well, you know, you're not really a, a dude anymore. No? Right? I remember reading this book for my children. Right? Instead of being a dude, you're a dweeb. Okay? A dude is a cool guy. A dweeb is an uncool guy. Right? Okay? And so instead of being a cool dude, you become a really uncool dweeb. Because you don't want to take part in all these manly things, about talking about sexual things or making sexual jokes. And uh, you might feel that you're being suffered. You suffer. You're persecuted for your righteousness. Maybe in your business, you know, in your workplace, people say, oh, let's go to karaoke. Or your client says, oh, let me, let me take you to Geylang. Or let's go to the pub for a drink. And you say, well, you know, as a Christian man, as a family man, I can't take part in that. And as a result, you lose the business. People think you're a loser. That's righteous suffering, isn't it? But, that is the example here of David, isn't it? That is the example here of David. That if you live as a righteous person, like Jesus says, you are now out of this world. And because you are out of this world, the world will hate you. And I think that this is something that we really have to stand firm in. That we have to stand firm in our righteousness. I have a friend of mine who is a businessman and he tells me about all the things he does. And sometimes I want to shake him up and wake him up and say, wake up, you know, have a bit of a backbone as a Christian. Right? Stand up for righteousness instead of giving in. Because, you know, we don't like being hated, right? Who likes being hated? Anybody like being hated? We all like being liked. But there are times where to be righteous, we will be hated. And what do we do? We cry to God for help, but we don't succumb to ungodliness. He goes on in this passage of Psalm 69 and says that, look, it is not just that they hate me without reason, without cause, but they hate this person, they hate David, because he is zealous for God, isn't he? He's zealous for God. He's not sinless, okay? I don't have enough time in the whole sermon to go into it, but verse 5 and 6 shows that he is not sinless. In verse 5 it says, he confesses his folly and his guilt before God. But that is not the reason why people hate him. He is still a righteous man in the actions that he does before other people. But, in verse uh, 7 and 9, he goes on to explain that people hate him because he is zealous for God. He is passionate for the things of God. Look at what it says there in verse 7. Look, look at me to verse 7. I endure scorn for your sake. For God's sake, he is receiving scorn. Verse 9. For zeal of your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you 
fall on me. So the words here are, he is suffering because he is standing up for God. Now the word here, zeal, zeal for God's house, is the idea of being on fire. You know, zeal, someone's on fire, it's like a burning coal, a flame. Right? He's zealous for the things of God. So that means that people dislike him, not because he's obnoxious, or because you know, he's smelly and he hasn't been putting on his deodorant or showering or something, right? but he is, he is disliked by people because he's on fire for God on fire for God's house. And there is a contrast because while he is on fire for God, his enemies are ready to pull buckets, to throw buckets of ice on him, right? To, to put out his flame. Because in verse 10 to verse 12, he says, while I weep and fast, I endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Uh, Those who sit at the gate mock me. I am the song of the drunkards. Now, he is weeping. He is fasting. He is putting on sackcloth. Why is that? Because he is weeping and mourning for repentance, of sorrow, for sin. For himself, maybe for the temple, maybe for the people of God. You see, weeping, and and, uh, if you look up here on this slide, Yep, you, I've got here a passage from Jonah. And weeping and mourning sackcloth all are tied in with repentance and sorrow over sin. It could be corporate sin for all the people, all the people's sin, or it could be personal sin, your own personal sin. Now, in the case of Jonah, Jonah went into the city of Nineveh and he, he, uh, he proclaimed God's judgment on the city. So he said... Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. See, sackcloth is a sign of sorrow and repentance. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and with passion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So here you can see that sackcloth and the weeping and the tears of the psalmist, probably David, is, is not because he is weeping and sorrowful because someone died or because he watched a sad movie. But he is, he is actually repenting and, and crying out to God for the sins of himself or the people or the temple or everything. So here is David, right? Imagine the picture. Here is David or the psalmist crying and in sackcloth, repenting of his sins. And you have these enemies of God, or his enemies, laughing at him and scorning him and saying, Why are you weeping? Why are you crying? Why are you in sackcloth? What is there to repent about? You know, you're, 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 you're taking this too seriously. So, here we have an idea of what exactly is happening in the persecution, isn't it? That here it is, David is on fire for God. 
And there are these people who are pouring cold water on his passion for, for God and repentance and sorrow for sin. And it's not just strangers who are doing this. Because look at what it says there in verse 8. I'm a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my own mother's sons. Now, you sort of think, the people who are closest to you, your own family, surely, you know, they will be the ones who will support you and be there for you when you are having times of trouble. But here is the psalmist, he's on fire for God, he's weeping and crying out to God, and his own brothers are the same people who are rejecting him. They're the same people who are pouring cold water on his zeal and his passion for God. So here we have the zealous sufferer. He's not just suffering because he's righteous, but because he, is, he has in mind the things of God. So here, if you look at this picture, right, we see that the whole of society has turned against the psalmist David. Because, if you look here, his family, his own brothers, turn against him. And it says there, in verse 12, those who sit at the gate, the, the people who sit at the gate are not the unemployed people, okay? The, the people who sit at the gate are the town elders, the leaders. They are the, like the town gate at the time was like parliament house, okay? So the rulers are scorning and laughing at the psalmist. But not only that, his own people, the very own people who should have known God are laughing at him. See, look, turn to me to verse 28. That's why we need to pay attention to the, what is being said here. Verse 28 is very important. Look at verse 28. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Now, the enemies and the opponents of the psalmist here are not non-believers because to blot out something from the book of life means that they must have been in the book of life to begin with. Don't you think so? So these are people who belong into the book of life. These are God's people. But David or the psalmist is saying, take your liquid paper and blot them out of the book of life. So these are the Jews. God's people, the Jews, are the ones who are turning against, turning against the psalmist, the zealous sufferer. Now once again, how do we understand this? The next slide. Okay, again, we, the New Testament takes the picture of the zealous sufferer and applies it to Jesus. So here in John chapter 2, very famous passage, John chapter 2. Next slide, yep. Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem and in the temple courts, he finds people selling cattle, sheep, doves, sitting at tables, exchanging money. Alright, and this area is actually meant for Gentiles to worship God. And here they were selling things and it was very noisy and people couldn't worship. It's a bit like uh, having our morning tea here right now as I'm preaching. Alright, so no way you can concentrate, right? So, Jesus then takes these cords, he drives them out, he scatters them, he turns them and you know, gets rid of them. And those that were selling the doves, he says, get out of here, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And his disciples remembered that it is written, and where, do we, where is it written? Psalm 69. Zeal for your house 
will consume me. So Jesus is the zealous sufferer of Psalm 69. He is the one who is consumed with passion for the things of God. And it's not just the temple, right? Jesus is not worried about the bricks and mortar of the temple. He's worried about his father's house, the spiritual condition of his people. And as we read, okay, this is John chapter 2, as we come to John chapter 7, we find that this zeal of Jesus is not appreciated by the people. In fact, as we look here in John chapter 7, next slide, even his own brothers do not believe in Jesus. See, you see all those pictures of how his own people reject him? If you read the Gospels, his own brothers reject him. Okay, and uh, the next slide. Okay, so it's no longer the psalmist who is in view here, but Jesus. His own people reject him, his own family rejects him, his own brothers. And even the religious leaders and political leaders reject Jesus. So here, as we look at this passage, how does it apply to us again? Do we just look at it and say, well, you know, it's only about Jesus? No, I don't think so. I think it's a lot more than that, isn't it? Because what's happening here is actually a lesson for us as well. Now, as we look at this passage, it shows us just how much Jesus suffered. When he dies on the cross, he dies by himself, rejected by everybody. His family, his disciples, the religious leaders, his own people are laughing and jeering and mocking at Jesus. Sometimes people say, ah yeah, you know, Jesus died on the cross. What is the big deal? Isn't it? I, he knew he was going to rise again in three days. He just like, you know, unconscious for a while, then he woke up, right? What suffering is there? Or maybe some people say, you know, they, they really focus on the physical suffering of Jesus. So, have you all seen the movie, The Passion of Christ? You know, which really focuses on Jesus being whipped and hanging on the cross and how painful the crucifixion is. Now, the crucifixion was a terrible thing. It was very painful. But if you look at the Gospels, it is not just the physical suffering that Jesus went through to die for us. But it was one by one, all the people who should have worshipped and acknowledged Jesus, turning away from Jesus. That was what was really painful. If you look at the life of Jesus, you know the, the, the opposition of the religious leaders, even though he healed and did all these miracles, the opposition of his own family members, the opposition of uh, his, you know, even like people like Judas who betrayed him, or even Peter who misunderstood him. All his own people turned away from Jesus at the very end. Now, how painful must that have been for Jesus? He was zealous for God to save his people and they all turned away from him. Now, how do we understand this passage again as Christians? Well, I think that it's very important for us to see that here, that zeal is very important in a Christian's life. I heard a talk on Friday, and this guy said, Praise God, because he heard that his father-in-law, at the age of 73, became a Christian. And he knew that his father-in-law was really saved, because the father-in-law said to him, I wish I became a Christian earlier, because there were so many things I could have done with my life for God. And that's true, isn't it? 
The Christian is marked by zeal for God and the things of God. And here, when David or the psalmist cries out to God, he is calling out to God for God's honour, for God's divine justice to defend his own name. Now I think the problem for us is, we often mistake our own personal agenda, our own personal justice with divine justice. So I went to the internet and I heard a sermon on Psalm 59. A very interesting sermon, you should listen to it. It was about this guy, I can't reproduce his uh, American accent, but basically he used Psalm 69 to call down all God's judgment on the enemies of America. Right? So one after another, all the people, you know, all the enemies of America, they were to be judged based on Psalm 69. But that's not what Psalm 69 is about, isn't it? Because here, it's about the psalmist calling on God's divine justice because God's name, God's house, God's people are actually uh, being attacked or being corrupted. And I think that part of the problem is that often when we pray this prayer, we think, oh, uh, you know, we should... God, can you help me uh, bring down curses on somebody who is attacking me personally? But it has nothing to do with actually zeal for God's house at all. So I remember even my, uh, my lecturer in theological college, who is now the acting principal of my theological college, he shared with me once, he shared with us actually in a class, how he once had a problem with his, uh, his minister. Okay? And um, after all, they really couldn't get along with each other. And he kept looking through the Bible for all these reasons why his minister was actually doing all these bad things. But then he realized after a while that actually it was just a personal thing that they couldn't get along with. They, would, they just, you know, they, they, it, wasn't a, it wasn't zeal for God's house, but a zeal for his own personal agenda that was the problem. And I think that for the person that even wants to contemplate praying to bring down justice on other people, they must know that this person is not so much attacking me personally, you know, but they are attacking God and God's purposes. So I want to read to you uh, this very interesting words that this person said, which I agree with. He said, The words of the Psalter ought to be understood not as an expression of an angry author or a fulmination of a firebrand, but as the sentiments of God himself. The thoughts of the psalmist being raised by the powerful spirit of prophecy above mere human vendetta and cursing. The expressions of the psalmist against sinners are God's expressions. They are the thoughts of his heart. See, God is angry when his name is actually blasphemed. God is angry when his people are attacked. God is angry when people claim to be God. In uh, the book of Acts chapter 12, if you look up here, uh, King Herod uh, received praise to be God. In verse 22 it says, They shouted, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. So, here, when we read this psalm, if we are to call down curses or call down justice on people, it's not because, oh, my lecturer gave me a bad mark. 
and I deserved it, or my boss gave me a bad appraisal and I deserved it, or you know, maybe um, my neighbor said something rude to me and I deserved it. No, it's because I was zealous for God and God's things. The prayer that I pray is something that God comes into the picture that God would actually want for himself. So one day, uh, this is a very extreme situation, one day, and I remember reading about it, let's say there is a dictator that comes into our country and starts persecuting Christians and starts calling himself a god uh, and starts torturing and murdering Christians. Well, I think on that day, where we have righteous suffering, where we have zealous suffering, we can pray the prayer of Psalm 69. It says, Look, God, your justice be shown. Your name be glorified. Show this person that you will not stand for, you know, for your name to be blasphemed and your people to be persecuted in this way. Now, there are two things that are very strongly in, in show here. One is righteous suffering and the other is zealous suffering. But the third thing is, who can we pray this prayer against? Well, we cannot pray against everybody, right? Okay, as we see here. It's very limited circumstances. But, the people we pray against as well are people who are steadfastly against God. Because I think it is true, by and large, we must pray for our enemies and love our enemies. But I think that in the Bible, it's very clear that there are people who are totally against God and His purposes. In verse 10 to 12, it must say something that these people are laughing at the psalmist while he is crying out and praying to God in sackcloth. It must be a very hard-hearted enemy of God to do that. Don't you think? In the New Testament, sometimes people say, oh, you know, the Old Testament, yalla, those people... You know, they kill people, or they hate people. Yeah, they can pray this sort of prayer. But in, in the New Testament, it's all about love. We cannot pray prayers which are against people. But that's actually wrong because in the, in, in the, in the New Testament, uh, Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and even the saints that await the return of Jesus, they pray exactly the sort of prayer in Psalm 69 where they call God's judgment on the enemies of God. So you look up here. Okay. Oh, good. It's up here. Good. So, Matthew 23. Jesus says, Woe to you. Woe to you. Teachers of law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces, and you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. So, Jesus expresses woe to these false teachers. In uh, Galatians chapter 1, this is what the Apostle Paul says. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, and so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you have accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Now these are not play-play words as well, isn't it? The Apostle Paul says, if you are leading people astray, you should be eternally condemned. Let them be eternally condemned. He is cursing them. No way around it. Revelation chapter 6. It says that in a loud voice, 
those who died because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained, they will shout out to God, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? So when can we pray this prayer of Psalm 69 when there is righteous suffering? When there is zealous suffering, but also against only a very exceptional group. A group of people who are as you can see here in the New Testament, who are leading people astray, teaching people false gospel, murdering God's people. So, we shouldn't be praying Psalm 69 against everybody, right? We shouldn't be praying it every day or every week or every year, but we should be praying it when the circumstances present itself like this. Now, one mistake, uh, coming to an end, one mistake that people make is when we look at Psalm 69, you think, oh, it's all about cursing people. Lah. Now, I don't want you to walk out here and then someone asks you, oh, what did you learn at church today? Oh, yeah. Pastor said we can curse people, right? Okay? Now, that's not what this passage is about because the passage doesn't end with cursing people. The passage actually ends with confidence in God. Confidence that even with righteous suffering, zealous suffering, God will protect me. That's where it ends in verse 34 to verse 36. Verse 30 to 36, isn't it? I will praise God's name in song and glorify Him in thanksgiving. Uh, and it goes on in verse um, 30, 30, 34. Let the earth, heaven and earth praise Him and the seas and all that move with them. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell there. Now you can see the mood of the psalm. He starts off saying, God, I'm drowning, I'm drowning, I'm drowning. Okay, the water is coming up to here. But he ends by saying, God will save me. He will deliver me. Now, in the New Testament, it takes Psalm 69 and says the very same thing. I know it's a lot of heavy lifting. I said, I warned you it's heavy lifting. So, this is the last heavy thing you have to lift. Romans 15. It says, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his own good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Now what a strange thing to say. It's basically saying, uh, help other people. Then you sort of think, well, this, the, you know, if you're going to quote from the Old Testament, you'll say, help other people. Lah. But it says, no, those who insult those, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And you sort of think, well, how does that fit in with helping the weak? Well, I think Don Carson is right because he says, the strong here, if you look at Romans chapter 15, the strong are those who have moved on from Judaism and the law. Circumcision and all that stuff, right? Food laws. And these are, help, these are meant to help the weak. So the Gentiles and the Christians, uh, the Christian Jews, are meant to help those who are escaping Judaism. But as they help, as the Gentiles help the Jews, they will face persecution. They will face insults. Because in those days, Jews and Gentiles do not mix. And therefore, that's why Psalm 69 is quoted here. Because 
the insults of those who insult me have fallen sorry, insult you have fallen on me. So when the Gentiles, the strong, who are free from all this Jewish law system, when they when they mix and associate with the weak Jews, they will be insulted, they will be persecuted by other fellow Gentiles who are not Christians. And that's why it says that for everything in verse 4 that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And I think that that's the whole idea of Psalm 69. It is about hope when we suffer righteously. It is an encouragement when we suffer for being a zealous Christian. So, whether God judges people in our lifetime and uh, brings down curses on them, we know that when we live zealously and righteously, we can have hope in the future. We will, God will take us through to the very end. We may not know how that happens. We may feel that we are drowning under opposition and persecution. But we have confidence that God will bring us through because He brought David through it and He brought Jesus through it. In conclusion, I, uh, I was very happy. I spoke to my dad yesterday and he said the most remarkable things to, thing to me, you know, my dad yesterday. Uh, apparently someone in his, uh, in his Bible study was asking all these questions and uh, he felt that the questions were not warranted. So he told this guy, and my dad is a very young Christian, he said, uh, do you know how Jesus raised Lazarus? And then of course the guy said, no lah. Uh, do you know how Jesus walked on water? No. Uh, do you know how Jesus was born as a you know, virgin birth? No. Uh, do you know how Jesus was raised from the dead? And then uh, the guy said, no. He said, then why do you ask so many questions? Just have faith lah, right? <laughs> and I started thinking, wow, wow, this is quite profound, no? Actually, theologically. And in the same way, I think this is what this passage is saying, isn't it? He's saying, yes, we might be drowning when we live righteously and suffer. We might feel like the whole world is against us. Our backs are to the wall when we live zealously for God and God's people and we suffer. But we will not know how God does it, but we know that He has the power and He has promised us that He will bring us to the very end. And we should just trust and, and have faith, isn't it? We should not shy, shy from this suffering and opposition. We must keep living righteously. We must keep, keep living zealously. Because we have hope in the future that God does save, He has saved, and He will save us. So let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving and heavenly Father, as we come before you today, truly help us to, to pray Psalm 69 with a right heart. That it is about living righteously before you. It is about being zealous before you. And if we would suffer for being righteous and zealous, so be it, dear Father. Uh, if uh, the conditions are right and the, the, our opponents are truly blaspheming you and turning against you and truly steadfast and stiff-necked in their hatred of you and all things of you, then yes, dear Father, we pray that you will bring judgment upon them and show that your name it should be glorified. But we pray that we may endure through all hardship and opposition, whether it be at work, whether it be in our social circle, whether it be in our school, whether it be wherever it is, and that we will always live for you and we know that you will save us and persevere us to the very end. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.